Welcome to The Publicist Speaks. I'm Jessica, the self-proclaimed podcast guru. A few weeks ago, we had Paul Myers in talking about the new book he was working on, Go All the Way. He is a contributor and an editor for that. And today, we have the criminal mastermind of this incredible book that I was just reading right before this podcast, S.W. Lawden, a.k.a. Steve Coulter. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have the other half of this editing duo uh, on my lovely show. I had a great chat with Paul about where this collection came from and what Power Pop was to him. And I'm going to ask you some of those questions later. But I will have to talk to you right now about the about your essay. I just finished reading it because I'm a slacker and I procrastinate. <laughs> I I just finished reading about it it's Fountains of Wayne, right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh I didn't know that that was the name that that band existed. However, I do know Stacy's mom. And <laughs> I couldn't believe that that was the name of this band. <laughs> I literally yeah. was just like no, that's not right. It's like in my, in my brain, I was like, no, what? when did that song come out? What bands came out? Like what bands were big that, at that point? None of those were the right band and it was Fountains of Wayne. So I need you to tell me how you came to write about that band. Yeah, I, you know, I listened to and played and recorded a lot of music in the 90s. And when we decided to work on this book together, I knew we weren't going to have a problem covering the 60s and 70s and even the early 80s bands because I think when a lot of people think about power pop, those are sort of the eras that they're mostly thinking about and the kinds of bands that they're mostly thinking about. And I really wanted to make sure, as, as did my partner, Paul Myers, who wrote about Sloan, which is another band that started in the 90s, um, we wanted to make sure that we were kind of pushing the genre forward and not sort of letting the story end at the knack. Um, and so he, he picked Sloan, which is a, a fantastic choice. And I originally was going to write about power pop drummers because I'm a drummer myself. And I did some interviews. Um, and one of the drummers that I tracked down was Ira Elliott from Not A Surf. And I intended to interview him. But after talking to him, he knew so much about power pop drumming and was so passionate about it that I actually handed that essay to him. And so he contributed that essay and then as I was looking around for what else I might want to write about, I started thinking about the music that I was listening to in the 90s. And that first Fountains of Wayne record, specifically the song Radiation Vibe, I just remember what it was like when I first heard that. And, you know, musically it was coming out of sort of a heavier place in this sort of pre, uh, post-grunge hangover that a lot of people have. And, and I, was, I was listening to a lot of dark and heavy music at that time. And when I heard Fountains of Wayne, I was like this like sugar injection into my veins. <laughs> and I, I was I was a fan of the band from that point forward, even though they do have one of the more questionable names of any rock band that's ever existed. <laughs> so um, I actually, speaking of the way that you felt when you started listening to it, I, I highlighted a section in your book the sentence, it's some of these 80s influences, along with nods to the Cars and Rick Springfield, that informed their biggest hit, Stacy's Mom. 
a song that inverts the lecherous theme of the knack's My Sharona to focus on the forbidden feelings of a horny teenage boy, <laughs> or the forbidden feelings a horny teenage boy has for his friend's mom. You know, yeah. power pop. And I think that yeah. that's one of the most hilarious sentences I've ever read. And it's it actually kind of, um, I just yesterday in today time, not in when this podcast goes live time, what, did a uh, podcast with uh, Jeff Rugby and Nancy Rommelman, where the whole uh, idea of a ecstatic, horny teenage boy seems to be a fairly thoroughfare description of how power pop makes people feel. Yeah, you know, we were, I was at rehearsal with a band that I play with the other night, and we were talking about power pop, and um, we were kind of trying to decide if different bands or different genres kind of bled into power pop. And, you know, it became this like escalating war of seeing who could like um, outdo the next person with a more outrageous suggestion. And so, I threw Poison, the, the hair metal band Poison, out, and I said, some of, their, some of the songs on their first record are kind of power pop, but you know, in talking about it and joking around about it in the rehearsal studio, um, where we landed was bands like Poison, even though the songs are poppy and hooky and melodic um, and have a driving backbeat, which are all things I would be looking for in a power pop song personally, um, the difference is the guys in a band like Poison have sex with the girl, but guys in power <laughs> pop bands are still trying to hold their hand <laughs> or take them out on a date. And so there is that sort of teenage naivete oh that's sort of built into it. Right. Um, even though something like My Sharona is a little more lecherous than that, and then is, is sort of skirts the line between those two worlds. But really there is a sort of profound teenage innocence uh, that underscores a lot of uh, themes in power pop songs. That's incredible. That's actually an, an amazing way to think about it because um, I hadn't even thought about Stacy's mom being power pop. But now that you've said it and now that I've gone through, this is probably my fourth power pop podcast I've done. <laughs> I think I'm finally starting to get it. I think I'm finally starting to understand the feeling that everybody's talking about because I've never been a horny teenage boy, so it's hard for me <laughs> to like play ca- place that emotion on something. But thinking yeah. of how Stacy's mom was one of those like I was one of those grungy kids in high school who uh, listened to I didn't listen to any of the current music. I was always like stuck in the '80s or early '90s or whatever. Um, <laughs> and so listening to stuff like Stacy's mom was in every single one of my playlists, all of them. Yeah. And uh, I can totally kind of relate that that teenage naivete, naivete feeling to uh, those kinds of songs. I totally get it. It's like that I want to be cool, but I don't know how to do it yet. Yeah, th- there's definitely that, you know, and and I think that even though uh, power pop is predominantly male driven or historically has been predominantly male driven, I, I think that those kinds of teenage feelings are universal, right? Like, you know, yeah. um, I know plenty of women who can tell me about crushes they had on a teacher oh, of uh, when they were in high school or junior high or something like that. And it's the same thing, right? It's this like 
exploring the emotions and urges that you're feeling before you're able to sort of define them um, and then projecting them onto whatever (laughs) the ideal is in the moment. And, you know, I mean, look, Stacey's mom's a funny song. It's about as hooky as you can possibly get. I mean, those guys are masters of hooks. Um, But, you know, the, the guy in the guy, the protagonist in that song, it's, all a complete fantasy world oh, that he's living in. Like this woman wants nothing to do with him and probably has no idea that, that you know, he's so horny for her because <laughs> it's his daughter's boyfriend or it's his daughter's friend. Yeah, it's her daughter's friend, right? So, so it's, it's, there is that sort of innocence. They might be talking about ideas and concepts and urges that, that, that are new to them and are really overwhelming, um, but they don't really know how to, how to wield them quite yet. And so there's a lot of projection and a lot of guessing that goes on um, thematically. Would you say that that is also uh, a thorough, like a, a theme that kind of is traced through all power pop? I, yeah, I mean, look, with power pop, anytime you throw the word all into it, <laughs> uh, you're just setting yourself up for debates, right? Like of course. one of the things that defines power pop is the ability to argue about what power pop even is. <laughs> like there's, there's very few people who will go on record with a definitive definition of power pop because right. it's, it's very hard to pin down. And I, and I honestly think that that is part of the appeal for super fans of the genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I'm trying to explain it to people who have no context, I often tell them that power pop is the debate club of rock and roll. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. So then what's your definition of power pop? I, I mean, I kind of already stated it and, right. and I won't say that this is my definition, but like what I look for, what attracts me to songs that I think fit the genre is hooks, okay. uh, driving backbeats, and strong melodies. And, <laughs> okay. and those are all just three elements of sort of like the earliest guitar pop bands from the 60s, specifically mm-hmm. British Invasion bands like early Beatles, uh, The Who, which brought a little bit more of a power component, and The Kinks, which skirted the line between both of those things, but then also threw in the wild card of singing about stuff that wasn't very common in rock songs at the time. Right. And so the, those guys are kind of in there doing that, but they set the template, whether on purpose or not, for what kind of becomes power pop or how power pop continues to evolve. It's about hooks. It's about a driving backbeat, and it's about strong melodies. That's amazing. I love hearing all, all everybody's different um, definition or their feelings towards um, this specific genre. Uh, what band or song um, do you remember as being the first song where you went, oh, this is what power pop is? Um, I have, I have a, probably a romantic answer to that, and I, and I have probably a, a realist answer to that because I think that My Sharona by The Knack uh, – is the where I first encountered the term power pop, where it was just like, that's a power pop band, and okay. that is the definitive power pop song. <laughs> and I couldn't tell you when that was. Of course. But in my, in my heart, um, I like to think that it's September Girls by Big Star. Oh, okay, okay. That's, that's super interesting, because uh, there's, there's something, there's a, a piece in our book about September Girls, if I remember correctly. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Rex Rex Weiner, who is right. a rare bird author, who who created uh, Ford Fairlane. Correct. Um, in the early 1970s, I mean, the guy Rex is a real character, um, <laughs> and the more I get to know about him, the more fascinating his life is. But yeah. he lived upstairs from Alex Chilton, who was oh, the man. lead singer of Big Star, in like 1971 in New York, That's and crazy. so he tells this very personal tale of remembering Alex uh, pl- strumming his acoustic guitar on the edge of his bed. And, <laughs> and uh, it, is, it is one of my favorite pieces in the book. Good. That's amazing. Um, when you found out about Power Pop, did you go and do like a little bit of a, a backtrace in your uh, music library or your favorite genres or whatever and be like, oh, this is coming from here or this is coming from there? Or did you do like any kind of back exploration about Power Pop? Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I wouldn't consider myself a power pop expert by any means. I mean, I I stumbled into the genre um, actually through punk rock. Um, You know, growing up in Southern California in the 80s, in, I, I, I grew up in the Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach area. And so, like, we're talking about, like, Black Flag and Red Cross yep. and the Circle Jerks and the Descendants. <laughs> um, and so you got this sort of steady diet of kind of uh, Southern California punk rock. Right. But a lot of it had pop elements to it. And, you know, I went through a Black Flag phase, but, like, it was honestly a little too angry for who I really was. <laughs> and I started finding myself... Um, being more and more attracted to bands like Descendants or Red Cross. And what I was started realizing is I liked the hooks, you know. Um, I liked that they were singing about girls. I liked that the tempos weren't necessarily completely too fast to be understood, that there was some mid-tempo stuff. Right. And I went back from there and, and started discovering the, the English punk rock bands like, you know, the Buzzcocks or Generation X or the Sex Pistols. And again, finding that through line of hooks and, you know, uh, commonality and some of the things they were singing about. So, you know, by the time I get to like the jam um, and and start exploring, um, moving forward into indie rock and college rock and bands like The Replacements and The Pixies and finding out about their influences, it just becomes this sort of soup of influences <laughs> and you discover you discover bands along the way that quite frankly at the time it didn't matter to me what the genre was i liked it or i didn't like it because right. um, i was i was on an archaeological expedition because i was so in love with music and i think for a lot of people when you're playing in bands like i did and i jumped in when i was a teenager um it, the the genre of music doesn't matter as much you're just soaking up information Right. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of that. And along the way, collected these power pop bands that I liked and these power pop songs that I liked. And I didn't really start sorting that out until I got much older and kind of looked in the rearview mirror and went like, oh, I guess I did like power pop all along. Or I guess (laughs) I did like certain kinds of bands more than other kinds of bands. But it, it, it took me having to live through that period of my life before I could look back on it and sort of kind of try to sort it out. Yeah. Understand it from a a post space i guess um yeah for sure yeah. it's easier to look back than than in the moment and you of know course. in the moment i it, you know it, it, those kinds of genres and cate- categorizations of music didn't always make a, a hundred percent sense to, to me when i thought about music like i just like liked it or i didn't you of know? course i mean um i as someone who is not incredibly musically inclined uh 
I don't have a whole lot of knowledge base about genres and music in general. Um, that's def- pretty much how I go off of, that's how I make my decisions. I either like it or I don't. Um, mostly because every genre seems so muddled these days that it's like mm. everything is every genre, right? I don't know. There's country and then there's not country. I guess that's yeah. how I go for it. <laughs> well, there, you know, we uh, nowadays so much of our listening is driven by algorithms, where it does the connecting for you. Right. For a lot of power pop fans, or for fans of any genre that kind of let's say started in the early '90s or before, you had to kind of be much more participatory in seeking out that information, right? Like if the replacements are going to sing a song about Alex Chilton, you're (laughs) going to do everything you can to find every piece of information and every piece of music about Alex Chilton. And and it's, you know, then you, you start tracking down interviews and, and uh, outtakes from sound checks and things that rumors that people have said about Paul Westerberg wearing a big star t-shirt or whatever, and lining that up with like the mixtape or the mix CD that somebody gave you. And you're like, Oh, (laughs) that's that song, September girls. Okay. Now it's all making sense. And so you had to like be a lot more active um, in pursuing information about music, not better, not worse, just how it was at the time. Now the algorithm does that for you. And that is amazing, right? Like it, it connects all these dots and goes, well, if you like this song, you're probably going to like this song. And most of the time, I don't think people are aware that one song came out three years ago and one song came out 28 years ago. They just know that they're good. Absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of Panic at the Disco and Brandon Urie right now and yeah uh a lot of like things like songs like Stacy's mom and my Sharona will pop up on my panic at the disco station along with like disturbed or other oh. other bands that just like randomly connect to something that I liked I pressed the wrong like button and suddenly I'm listening to Taylor Swift every two minutes <laughs> Yeah. I listen to a lot of Taylor Swift in my house because I have a teenage daughter, but, you know, I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, so your your story or your essay in this book is about uh, Fountains of Wayne, as we, we had already mentioned. Tell me about your title. Oh, Power Pop for Slackers? Yes, please. Where did that come yes. from? Yes. Well, so like, you know, I think the word slacker gets thrown around a lot these days uh, to mean different things, but... You know, in the in the early 90s uh, or in early to mid 90s, slacker was a way of defining a lot of the attributes of the Generation X cohort. So like, <laughs> you know, the, the generation that came after the baby boom, but before the millennials yep. were called slackers. And there was a film called Slackers. And um, it was just sort of this idea that you had a temp job and you weren't really trying to get a career and <laughs> you were kind of socially and politically disaffected. Um, and there was a, a healthy dose of irony that was involved and a lot of eye rolling. You know, think, think Winona Ryder. Um, <laughs> and so, and so, uh, uh, I, I kind of think it lyrically, and I talk about this in my essay, uh, there's a lot about Fountains of Wayne that is very classically uh, power pop. It fits very neatly in the genre in terms of the musicality and the kinds of hooks mm-hmm. and the kinds of bands and, and, and scenes that they're referencing. Where it departs is the, uh, a lot of the lyrics are super ironic, often very snarky. Oh, for and sure. And not particularly innocent, right? Like, they're, they're, <laughs> like they've got this 
side glance at what's going on and they're kind of getting judgy, right? Yeah. Like it's this guy's with this girl and I kind of like that girl. So that guy's a jerk kind yep. of stuff. Um, or being very concerned about careers and money and how things are going to turn <laughs> out. And these are all things that were, were often talked about by generation X right. or in relation to generation X. So um, I just, I, I think of them as sort of the ultimate generation X band and and so digging into their lyrics and talking to one of the main songwriters, Adam, um, I kind of really doubled down on that concept. And, and, and I think it works. I think it's true. I think that they are uh, they do a really good job of nailing the spirit of what Generation X was mm -hmm. specifically in its late 20s all the way through its 30s. Right. I don't actually sitting here thinking about it and hearing and thinking of songs that are in the same vein of um, Stacy's mom. I could absolutely see that being the case. Um, makes me think of old Green Day and how oh, yeah. and how some of their like very early songs kind of did the same. Like I'm, it sounds nice, but I'm actually talking mad shit about you. <laughs> Yeah, and there's also that sort of like um, that sort of self-loathing. Oh, absolutely. Vibe. And with with Green Day, you know, if you talk about something like Basket Case, yep. You know, he's just like taking himself apart in that, and he's like, oh, maybe sure. I'm not cut out for adulthood, right? Like, and and I think that there's a dose of that as well in Fountains of Wayne. The punk is not as pronounced no. uh, as it would be in a Green Day, right? But I also think that in Fountains of Wayne, they even from the start. They were writing from a little bit older perspective, right? They were already mm -hmm. writing, even if they weren't that age yet, they already feel late 20s, early 30s. Like, yep. it's like the boy's charm is gone. Get your shit together. Yep. <laughs> and like resisting that temptation to be that person is a lot about what they sing about. They sing a lot about like, do I drink too much? They sing a lot about um, the jobs they have being terrible and the bosses they have being terrible. And they sing a lot about failed relationships. Yeah, of course. You know, and loneliness. Um, and that's not always stuff that you're going to find in power pop songs, but when you put the whole package together, I think they definitely do qualify. I would agree. So I, like I said, I don't really have a whole lot of musical knowledge and a base for me. Um, but when I'm think when I'm sitting here thinking about some of the bands that I grew up on, I could see I can see Green Day fitting into power pop. I could see some of Nirvana fitting into power pop. Maybe even uh, I don't know. I I have a very weird and eclectic group of um, music in my brain. What's the band that I'm thinking of? And it's gonna drive me crazy because I'll leave the studio and I'll remember. Um, this is definitely Nickelback, right? <laughs> <laughs> always Nickelback. It's always Nickelback. Um, well, whatever. I can't remember it right now. But there's a whole bunch of just like what the pe what kids my age were listening to was just never what I was interested in. It was always like I was the I was the power pop one. I was the one that was always thinking I was in my 20s when I was, you know, eight. But it didn't yeah. help. It didn't help that I had a brother who was 18 at that time, too. Yeah. Um, right. So I think that that kind of like goes in with the vein of what power pop is for the audience, where it's kind of uh, sort of beauties in the eye of the beholder, but power pops in the ear of the listener. Yes, yes. I, I, I think you make a really good point there because 
One of the things that when you spend as much time thinking about a genre as Paul and I did um, and, the, and the contributors did, you, you start to think very deeply about what the genre definitions are mm-hmm. and what it means not only to the band, but what it means to the listeners. And in the case of Power Pop, it's got some unique challenges that I don't think a lot of, a lot of other genres have. Right. Um, uh, you know, because it's, it's hard to define specifically because there aren't many bands that self-define as power pop. In fact, because power pop became this sort of kiss of death after the necklash, right? So the neck got really big, really fast. And then there was this huge backlash. But in the meantime, the rec- the major record labels had signed all these bands that sounded like the Knack, right? So they were kind of left in the lurch when it was like, well, maybe Power Pop's not going to be the thing eight months later. And then they pushed in the direction of New Wave, right? Which shares a lot of stylistic similarities right. to Power Pop. But New Wave became the thing. So Power Pop's this like little blip historically, <laughs> but you can trace its you can trace the roots to so many other things right. going backwards and forwards. But you find yourself stuck in time, and often you end up getting into to talking less about specific bands and more about specific albums or even more so specific, specific songs. songs. Um, what that does, unfortunately, when you're talking about you saying that you're listening to Green Day and Nirvana and you can start to see um, some similarities or some connections or some overlap with Power Pop is – um, power pop doesn't allow itself to evolve. It always harkens back to the thing, right? It right. always goes back to the 70s and 80s, or the, if you want to keep going back to the people 60s. that was based on the Beatles and those yeah. bands. Like, so you'll find a lot of power poppers who just don't think there's any such thing as power pop after 1985. Of and I don't personally agree because that's the easiest way to kill a genre, right? Yeah. Like, if you hear, if you are somebody who's much younger and you hear power pop in those bands, you're going to go backwards and find those other bands that have that same kind of connection, yeah, right? Yeah, same sound. And, and that keeps the genre alive and it also keeps the genre pushing forward. So, like, I'm personally all for a very loose definition of power pop. <laughs> it is in the eye of the beholder. I, I, I think that Paul and I had talked about something similar to that where um, it is pretty common for people to think that when I'm having these conversations with people from, from your book and the contributors who helped make this collection happen, um, they are all talking about bands that haven't made music since the 80s. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm sitting here and I'm like finally getting it after you know hours and hours of discussion and all that and but i'm like connecting it to bands that um that have only started making music in the 90s or in the 2000s even and it's like and it's one of those just like kind of weird evolutionary traits where it's vaguely power pop or to me it's power pop where to someone else is it isn't and i think that uh, Green Day and Nirvana are pretty good examples of that because they can fit into a multitude of categories depending on which song you're listening to. So I think that that's super interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, look, and then you, I think it, the, common, the common denominator really is pop, right? And really right. we're talking about guitar pop yep. primarily when we're talking about power pop. So it's like you go like pop punk and you go Brit pop 
And both of those genres have a lot in common, if not blatant overlap with power pop. There are plenty of pop punk songs and that are, that would qualify as power pop, maybe if they were slowed down a little bit, but, but, um, and there are plenty of people who, if you put them on the spot and ask them for an example of a power pop band, will name a pop punk band. Of course. Um, and, and also like Britpop, there was a lot of power pop overlap right. there, but they somehow managed to dodge the, the bullet of being defined as power pop because it's always been considered a career killer. Um, I think that, that uh, Marco DeSantis wrote a piece in the essay collection uh, called Surrender because yeah. he was in a band called Sugar Cult that was a pop punk band or like a rock band, uh, indie rock band. And, you know, they wore they wore sports coats and skinny ties for part of, <laughs> for yeah. part of their existence. And, you know, in a lot of ways, when you saw them live and understood what some of the influences were, they qualified as power pop, but they actively dodged <laughs> being defined as that. And his piece is about how, you know, he finally comes to terms at the end of the piece yep. uh, by saying, you know, maybe we were power pop all along. <laughs> um, so it's, it's an interesting relationship, but there's not a lot of bands that will will cop to being power pop or right. will lay claim to that um, title or uh-huh. wave that flag. So then it becomes a um, fan-driven genre, um, which is oh. unique because a metal band will call itself a metal band. A punk band will call itself a punk band, right? A ska band will call itself a ska band. A reggae band will call itself a reggae band. But then you get power pop and people are like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we're not. Maybe we are. And so it it puts it on the fans to define and not the band. And that's just, if nothing else, it's an interesting dynamic for this genre. I really wonder what um, some of today's bands would say about themselves. Like um, Blink-182, Fall Out Boy, everybody who did music in the late 90s, early 2000s, I would absolutely attribute some of their music to being as being uh, power poppy, but I would like, I would love to hear uh, what they had to say about the genre themselves. Keith Buckley is one of our big authors here, and he has a pretty big metal band. He's that he's a lead singer for, and I would I'm gonna have to call him and see if he'll come on and talk to me <laughs> about power pop now because now I'm super interested. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think I think that you hear like with Blink One Eighty Two, it's not as overt to me. Um, but like with Green Day, mm-hmm. I, I personally definitely think if you talk to Billy Joe Armstrong, he would like be able to rattle off like seven or eight power pop bands that he loves. I kind of hear it in the music. Oh, I absolutely. Um, I'm not do. a big Blink fan, so I'd, maybe maybe there's some songs I'm missing, <laughs> but um, Green Day for sure. I, yeah. I think I think that 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 they. Would freely no? They would. Uh, I think they would initially go back to like the Buzzcocks. But then when you're talking about the Buzzcocks, which was my entry into all this, or you uh-huh. know those kinds of bands, you're you're pretty quickly into power pop territory. I yeah. I think that maybe I'll have to put some fingers on some things and see if I can get some cool some of those artists out. Um, we just yeah. did. We just did a a book with um, John Goblicon, who's the mascot for uh, Necro Goblicon. Uh-huh. And I bet he would laugh and have a great time talking about oh, this. Yeah. So I might have to have him come in too. Um, speaking of all of these incredible names, how did you get all of these incredible names in your book to contribute to power pop essays? 
Um, it was a lot of coercion and bribery, oh, good. mainly. There good, was good, some, good. There was some threatening um, in a couple cases. <laughs> Absolutely. There was kidnapping, oh. uh, a little bit of bribery, you good. know, that kind of thing. But Absolutely. No, I mean, look, Paul and I uh, have been in a lot of bands uh, between <laughs> us. Um, Paul and I have been writing and publishing for a long time. Um, and so I think initially both of us just kind of had our wish lists for the kinds of writers that we wanted to have in this collection um, the kinds of voices we wanted to have, the, the different kinds of perspectives we wanted to have. You know, neither of us wanted to have a book just full of musicians oh, of course. talking about their glory days. Uh, neither did we want to have a bunch of just, just rock critics um, analyzing bands the way that rock critics do or just a book full of interviews conducted by journalists. Like, we have all of those things, and I think it paints uh, an interesting uh, picture uh, more of the totality of the genre, the good and the bad and the ugly of the genre. <laughs> right. Um, and what some of the debates are and what some of the passion points are and what some, of the, uh, what some of the strong feelings are. And it's not all positive, right? And we purposely picked a few bands and a few writers or contributors um, that we knew were on the bubble or that often get argued about. Like, you know, I, I went and asked Daniel Brummel um, from Ozma, who'd also... Uh, worked with Weezer uh, for a few years to write about whether or not Weezer's a power pop band. And, you know, that's one that gets hotly debated all the time because they have a couple early songs that definitely oh, qualify. Oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. But, but not, life. you know, moving forward, Weezer would never call itself a power pop band. And, <laughs> and so I loved Dan. I knew Daniel personally, and I knew his story of being in a high school band that worshipped Weezer that then got discovered by Weezer and taken on tour by Weezer. And so oh, he's Jesus. got this really interesting perspective on that band. And in the essay, he just grades every album, uh, every song on the Blue Album on a scale of one to one, 1 to 100, whether or not it's power pop, and comes up with an overall score. And I think that's a really unique perspective yeah. from somebody who knows music in and out who's too young to have been around for the power pop heyday. Right, of course. That's actually that's incredible. I didn't even I didn't, hadn't even thought about it in the terms of Weezer, for example. I hadn't I hadn't even thought about it, but like now sitting here thinking about the songs some of their songs, oh, absolutely they would fit into that like euphoric feeling, excite, excitement kind of uh, For sure. I mean, musically, yeah. I mean, they uh, thematically or like lyrically, they start to kind of go a different direction. Oh, absolutely. Um, they don't. They don't own the sort of like teen, um, the happy teen feeling. You know, if you get into <laughs> something like Pinkerton, mm -hmm. there's definitely some of the dark teen feelings in there. Oh, you know, yeah. like they kind of start to go in an emo direction pretty fast. Oh yeah. But you know, a song like like a song like Buddy Holly. Oh, for sure. Pretty much just a power pop song. Oh my gosh! Now I'm singing it in my head. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens it's but exactly yeah no that makes sense so uh are there any bands that you wish to see in like if there was going to be a second volume oh man there are so many uh <laughs> you, you know there were so many that that we had on our lists and um that other people suggested but weren't able to write didn't have the time um, or, you know, afterwards people are like, how could you leave this band out? And of it's like, course. oh man, you know, but it's like, we only had so much room in the book. So yeah. I, I, I think that like my wish list, if there was going to be a second volume would probably be like, 
uh, Matthew Sweet, The Posies. Oh. I'd really love to see somebody write something about Teenage Fan Club, mostly because I think they're a band that power pop fans love and often consider power pop, but they they have been very vocal that they hate the term. <laughs> they don't like being classified power pop. So I think that that would be really interesting. Um, we, we didn't actually have a complete essay about the raspberries, even though the, the book was named after <laughs> named one after of their songs. Song? That's hilarious. Um, I mean, they were, they were throughout, yeah, they were definitely course. represented throughout and same, same thing with bad finger, uh, the oh, Rubenus. Uh, I'm super interested in like, Bram Tchaikovsky and the bands that led up to that, like the Motors and Ducks Deluxe. So it's like there's there's a lot of fertile ground. I mean, it's like you could write a whole series of books <laughs> or somebody could write a whole series of books about power pop just because it's not easily defined. And so yeah. you can just really Argue write about, about some it. outliers and just make people think yeah. and consider it. That's incredible. Well, I super hope that you continue to talk and teach everybody about power pop um thank you so much for coming and doing this podcast with me i love learning more about this genre and finding more th- more and more things that i about myself and the music that i listen to giving me ideas and talking to big musicians and reaching for the stars <laughs> <laughs> Wow. You went out on a big note there. But thank Always you for do. having me. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And it was a great conversation. And, and thanks so much for uh, giving so much airtime to the contributors and to Paul and myself. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait to get you and Paul in the virtual same room or actual same room, whichever one actually works. I learned that you guys hadn't actually met yet, which is just baffling to me. So I can't wait to talk to you guys about that on the next the next time. All right, I'll look forward to it. All Thank right. you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve.